Welcome to the Hingham Cast. I'm your host, Allie Donnelly. The Hingham Cast is hyper local, looking at the pandemic, politics, and everything in between through the lens of one small town here on Boston South Shore. Like back to school. As COVID cases rise, fueled by the highly contagious Delta variant, what will it be for our kids? This episode is longer than usual because we've got a lot of ground to cover. First, we sit down with Gary Maestas, brought in to be Hingham's interim superintendent for this next year. He weighs in on everything from requiring vaccines for teachers to mending damaged relationships to where he stands on making masks mandatory for all students or optional for some. We also talk with two doctors, one who says there should be an end game for masks in school. Another who wouldn't even consider it right now. But let's start with Gary Maestas. He made time to talk with us last week with the latest on the Delta variant ever evolving. Our conversation has been edited for time. Hi, Gary. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. You were superintendent of Plymouth Public Schools for 12 years before retiring last year. Why on earth would you want this job? <laughs> you know what? Uh... That is a good question that everyone has been asking me. Why do you want to do that? Why, why, do, you, why do you want to go back and do that? Mm. I know how difficult schools uh, going into this time of year, how difficult it is. I'm coming to support Hingham. It's a great school system, has an unbelievable reputation, and I'm going to be there in my role to support them, to guide, to be in a place where they can welcome a new superintendent. And there's a lot of you know, steps along the way that, that need to be taken to actually get there. Okay. You told the Hingham Anchor that one of the things we need to do relatively quickly is give the community a sense of where things are going for the new school year. Um, we're just a few weeks out. Where are things going? Well, you know, parents want to know. There's so many different uh, sectors of the community, stakeholder groups, and, and they all have concerns. You know, they're looking forward to how they send their kids to school and what does that look like? You know, we, we want to get out some information to them. And I, and I think timely is important, but the other thing that kind of outweighs that at this stage of the game is, are we taking into consideration every bit of information that's available to us? You know, mm -hmm. from the, the science perspective, the, the data of where Hingham is today, uh, statewide, um, and how does that apply to how schools are run? Yeah. With the information you know and the data you have, where do you stand on vaccination for teachers and staff? Would you advocate that they be required with, you know, some exceptions? And what about masks as well? Uh, you know, if you've been vaccinated, the, the data is really powerful on how your conditions are minimized if you do get COVID. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage all staff members in the school system to strongly look at how that will assist your school system and assist you in really managing um, your classroom. Yeah, but encouraging and pushing that they be required are, are different. Where, where yes. do you stand on the requirement issue? Yeah, I think requiring is going to be a tough call. And the reason why there are a lot of personal beliefs about uh, vaccinations. Some mm -hmm. are, are religious, some are uh, health concern wise. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we can strongly encourage. And I'm not 
of the mindset that that you, we have to, um, you know, mandate that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, million dollar question. Let's talk about masks for kids. Yeah, yeah. It's a flashpoint around the country and here in Hingham. The governor says the state strongly recommends masks for unvaccinated students, but he thinks the decision ultimately should be made at the local level by the people who know the communities best. CDC recommending masks for all students, regardless of vaccination. Where do you stand on the issue? Well, you know what? I, I respect uh, Governor Ma- Baker immensely. I think um, he and his administration has done a, a monumental job of navigating COVID in, in Massachusetts. I think I do have one bit of disappointment in the sense that, you know, the superintendent school committees need some level of direction. Mm. on mm-hmm. and, and firm direction on what's expected. It puts a significant amount of pressure on communities, school boards, towns, board of health, mm-hmm. all these different groups in communities to go out and create these multiple policies. But I want everyone to keep in mind that the job of the school committee and of central office and, and, and all the schools in, in, in Hingham is to keep kids in school, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. get them educated to the best of our abilities. Yeah, I'm sure, I don't know if it's been delivered to you yet, or I suspect you know about it, but there's a petition circulating. It's really unclear how many Hingham parents have actually signed it, but um, it looks like dozens of parents support a connected Facebook page. So they want masks to be optional, to be the choice of parents. So yeah. I did reach out to several members of the group, and no one wanted to go on the record. Sure. But here's their platform on the petition, and I'm quoting here. Masks are a medical treatment with real risks, so it is critical that each individual family is able to decide whether or not to mask their child based on parents' assessment of risks versus benefits for their own individual child. The extensive science and research detailing the harmful mental, physical, emotional, and social effects to our young developing children proves masks are not a one-size-fits-all treatment. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, it's it's they they present a, a compelling position, you know, because there is information out there that that does provide, you know, some data that suggests that mm-hmm. that masks are harmful, and that's one thing that we have to take into consideration, you know. And so the school committee has to weigh if we take this risk and and we allow you know optional opportunities for students to have masks. How do we monitor it? Mm. If we're going to allow, you know, a choice, then what are the policies and processes that we need to give schools so they can actually manage it? Could you see a situation where some kids in a classroom are masked and others aren't? That's a possibility. I think it poses a lot of difficulty in the sense of if somebody is in that classroom actually test positive, mm. you know, because then we have to start, you know, getting into that, you know, how, how did it happen? How close were they? What was the conditions that actually caused it? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how many people really understood how difficult it is for schools to quarantine and how difficult it is for schools to actually determine, okay, so if this person was a close contact and they, they you know, there are specific details. I, I understand both sides of the, of, of, of the argument. And this is where the difficulty comes in. For every bit of research that you can find and, and documentation that you can find for, for not wearing masks, you, you have compelling arguments on the other side. Mm. And, you know, it's very powerful. And then you have 
you know, the agencies that we're supposed to listen to, you know, the CDC, we're supposed to listen to the Mass Department of Public Health. We're supposed to listen to all these agencies that are saying, now, you know what? We made huge progress. This is the direction that we recommend that you go. So for the school committee and, and for us as a school system to actually implement something, it's so difficult. I want to pause here for a second. When we talked with Maestas last week, the latest data from Hingham's Board of Health showed an uptick in cases. In June, we had five COVID cases, none from the Delta variant. In July, we had 33 cases reported, five were Delta. In August so far, we've had 20 new cases, but the town hasn't said if those are breakthrough cases or if any of them are pediatric cases. Health officer Susan Sarney says contract tracing has ramped up significantly, even as our vaccination rates are above state average. Well, I think the problem that you have is we have low, every community that has low numbers, these communities are not isolated, mm-hmm. you know, so there's a lot of migration, people going all over the place, people traveling now, trying to get back to normal. Yeah. And that exposure, the number means something. It means that, yes, we are going to be able to handle things at a different level in the community, but, but kids are still exposed. Students are still exposed. Staff are, are going to still be exposed. If you had to give a recommendation to the school committee right now on whether or not to require masks for all kids in Hingham Public Schools, what would your decision be? Well, here it is, August 11th, 2021. You know, uh, based on the information that we have and the experiences that I've had dealing with this, I think the elementary poses uh, significant concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, we did a, a great job in our schools of keeping those kids in schools. And I think it's because of the processes that were put in place. I think that is a compelling reason to try to keep some of those protocols in place. Now, when you take a look at the high school, that's a little bit different. You know, the high school, I think the numbers are in the 80 percent, uh, around 80 percent or a little bit higher of the students in Hingham have been vaccinated, Um, you know, but I think the school committee has to take a look at those scenarios and those numbers to actually make those recommendations, you know. So, you know, I would hate for my comments to sway any decisions, but when you look at the data, it's compelling. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think from what I'm hearing is elementary, it sounds like you would lean to masking. Yeah. But I, I would definitely, I, you know, we need to look at how we can minimize any exposure mm-hmm. and, and what is going to help that. If we want our kids educated in an environment that is optimum for learning, the masks are definitely not optimum. But how can we keep kids in school? So that's elementary. What about middle and high school? Uh, you know, what? I, again, I think it depends on the vaccination. There's some compelling evidence to suggest that if you're vaccinated, your health conditions, if you get it, are minimized significantly. So is it fair to say you are more open to not mandating masks for middle and high school? I'm open to it. And I think it's it's something that, like I said, the school committees have to uh, take into consideration. But, you know, knowing that I'm the interim and knowing that you know, I'm very cautious to try to not make statements that would put people into a position. If I if I was a long-term Hingham superintendent, I was here for 10 years, 
I think I'd probably have a lot more influence over some of these decisions, but I'm really in support of how we have to roll these out. So will you make recommendations? I'm sure they're going to ask me. Do tell us your answers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, like I said, I think elementary is a little different game. It's a little different situation. I I would definitely support mass at the elementary. Hmm. So in that, would you think that there would be a plan to separate vaccinated and unvaccinated kids 12 and over? I think that would be a disaster. Management-wise, it would be difficult. You know, class, you have to understand that uh, when classes are assembled, it's it's based on staff availability. It's based on maximum class size. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, our schools are only so big. Yeah, We ran into that last year. This is all new, you know. So it's, yeah, it's it's a tough time to be in this space, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if if there were a policy put into place that made masks optional at the uh, 12 and up level, would there be an option for families who were not comfortable with that plan to go remote? No, there will be no remote. As far as the Department of Education, they, they have said learning this year will happen face to face. And last year was very, very difficult to keep two models up and running and, and for, yeah. for both populations to receive that quality of education. Yeah, yeah. So then in your mind, what's the extra effort then to, you know, if if people were concerned about getting sick, teachers, staff, students, what's the plan for them to help keep them safe? Yeah, well, there there are mechanisms within the employee, you know, contract and, and things of that nature if they feel that their health is uh, at risk because of, of COVID. And there are provisions with uh, employment law that they can seek the uh, human resource department regarding and within schools, you know, parents have the option to homeschool and you see that, you know, we don't encourage that, but we've seen homeschool numbers uh, fluctuate during COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen Mm -hmm. homeschool numbers went up um, at the beginning, you know, dramatically and they started coming down when we started really learning more about it and they've somewhat stabilized. But I, I think all school districts in Massachusetts are starting to, to, to see homeschool uh, applications um, increase. Yeah. Do you consider that option to be equitable? And I think it's equitable if the supports are there in the family to actually execute it. And you think that's equal access in terms of access to education? If I was, uh, you know, a child who had an immuno, you know, a compromised immune system, my option as it stands in that kind of format is to be homeschooled. But what if my parents can't? Then what do we do for that child? Well, that's the, the issue. Tough calls for everyone here. Okay, let's take a quick break. If you like the podcast, follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and share us with a friend. We need your support for community journalism. Let's get back to our conversation. There will be no cohorts next year. Testing is still being discussed, and it's unclear how classrooms will be configured, among other things. Whatever is decided, the school committee expects to reevaluate the situation every four weeks. Talk to me about lunch. What are the plans there? Will the kids eat in the cafeteria at their desks? How will you deal with those kind of spacing issues? I think that that is still uh, to be determined based on what the conditions are. And, and so this is how it basically shapes out. Once once the decision is made as to mask, no mask, options, whatever, 
uh, every school, they have to take a look at space and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's all based on what the policy will look like. So once the schools have it, they will work diligently to get things done so we can get off and running. And when do you think that might be? To be safe, I'd say it's about two weeks away. Two weeks. Okay. Um, so I think, are you going to give me the same answers for kind of what will happen with chorus and sports and extracurriculars? Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's going to be the same. I'll, you know, to, to be fair, you know, with all of the other support uh, options in schools, all of those really need the guidance of uh, these policies to help shape and uh, make them work. Okay. I might get the same answer to this question too, but, you know, we're seeing more countries and places being deemed as high risk for travel. What if during the school year, people travel for the holidays, school vacations, um, to one of these spots or, or wherever, do you envision any requirements to quarantine or anything like that? Well, you know, I, I was on a call this morning with, with, a, with the town of Hingham, and, and, and there will be some very clear guidance that will go out to all our families that really help them to make these decisions. Hmm. Uh, again, the, this guidance is going to be different if you're vaccinated or not vaccinated. Well, I want to move on a little bit because um, this is a lot to balance and implement, and school starts soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about social-emotional health. In your mind, what's been lost for kids in the last year plus? You know, uh, Ali, I will tell you my biggest concern is that kids are some have become somewhat isolated. Mm-hmm. I think we've realized, and, and we're going to realize, that we have a lot of students that are going to need some level of transitional support. Yeah. But I'll tell you, I think it's going to be difficult. I mean, some students haven't been in school for, for quite some time. Yeah. And we we need to be prepared for that. It's going to be tough. And I, I, I just want to you know let everyone know that school systems are working diligently to try to address some of those. You know, we had a tough time before COVID with all of the different challenges of, of what kids are experiencing. And now we have the unknown of, of, of the COVID effect that they have when they were not in this social environment. Yeah. So how do we help them to reintegrate into that environment and, and make it as comfortable as we can? Uh, that's, that's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have enough counseling and other staff to meet the need, do you think? Well, you know, I think every school department will, will tell you today, based on social-emotional issues that they've experienced that we need more and more. I think that's something that we're going to have to monitor and really work with our principals to kind of gauge that as time goes on. We're going to have our work cut out for us. Yeah, yeah. A similar question for kids with special needs and IEPs. They may be suffering on top of all the other um, kind of average path kids in terms of uh, learning plan in terms of social emotional. So how much slide do you worry there was for that population and what are you going to do to help them? Yeah, I, I think a lot of the things that we will be doing in their schools is, is trying to gauge that so that we can try to bolster that and get kids back on grade level, back at reading level, back on that curricular um, you know, piece where they need to be. And I think that's something that is going to be challenging for for all our schools. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, throughout 
the COVID year, whatever we want to call that, <laughs> the COVID hell, there is a lot of damage to relationships between parents and administration and teachers. Yeah. What's your plan there? Well, you know, I think the relationship that exists between the school department and the uh, community is, is so important, you know, and I think there's damage anytime, you know, people are on one side of the fence and the other. Mm -hmm. You know, the school committee has had to make some very difficult decisions that some people have not liked. Some people have. Yeah. Um, I think the approach that <clears throat> I have in the school system is to really, you know, be in schools and to be available to uh, our teachers and administrators to the best of my ability and try to do that with the community. What I'm doing is really trying to um, get things prepared for transition and get things ready so that the next superintendent can really start and succeed. But I think to your point specifically around, you know, relationship is, you know, we're going to work really hard at communication, trying to, you know, I'll tell you right now, there's going to be people no matter no matter what decision is going to be made, there will be people that are going to be very upset. Mm. and. I think they're going to automatically gravitate to, you know, you didn't listen to us. Hmm. You know, so how can we have a good relationship if you're not willing to take in, into my into, into consideration where I am? Hmm. Well, you know, the relationship that we're going to work through with their kids and hmm. we're going to work towards educating the best to the best of the abilities that we can. And, uh, you know, I don't know when the relationship between communities and schools get better. People are going to have a variety of opinions that the school committee has to try to make sense of. So it's a lot of responsibility. It's a mm. huge responsibility. And they take it seriously, but I, I just ask that you give them a break, you know, because they, yeah. they're doing the best they can. You know, everyone, everyone is. Mm. One thing that nobody's talked about is that we have set almost an undeliverable expectation of school administrators and teachers. Mm. I believe we're going to have a mass exodus of administrators and teachers. Yeah. And that's because they are carrying the weight that they never, never were prepared for. We're not epidemi epidemiologists. We're not the scientists. We have the background on how to work with kids. Hmm. You know, that, 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 that's what we were trained for. What would you say to parents who said, what can I do to make this the best school year for my child? What would you say? You know, the best thing that they can do is to trust the school system, trust that we're going to put some things in place to allow your child to reintegrate back to school. And we want your children to walk through the doors of their school and feel like they belong. Mm. You know, and I know some people are going to say, well, how can they feel like they belong when they're having to wear a mask? You know, I can tell you last year, when schools opened, the kids were just so excited to be home. Mm -hmm. I think everyone would have a higher level of confidence in the school system if we were back to normal. Mm -hmm. I think they would. But right now, we're not there yet. Let's take a break here to say, if you haven't signed up for our emails, you're missing out. Subscribers can win gift cards, movie tickets, and a lot of cool swag. Sign up at thehinghamcast.com. Okay, my next guest is Dr. Benjamin Linus. He's the medical director for the Community Research Network at Boston Medical Center. He's also helping advise Brookline Public Schools on their return to the classroom. 
I asked if he embraces or dismisses the push to make masks optional. No, I definitely do not dismiss that. I think it's a really hard discussion right now. And I think to some extent, if it's becoming heated, and it is in many communities, um, largely it's because it's about our kids and everyone feels passionately about their children. But also it's because I think it's unclear and there are very good arguments on both sides of this question today. So I, you know, I think it's really important when we're thinking about COVID mitigation in school to consider the entire picture, which is a cost and a benefit picture. And there are costs and there are benefits from all sides. Hmm. And we have to remember there's two things here. There's a really important need to control COVID and prevent COVID transmission in our schools that everyone is familiar with. Mm. There's also a really important need to educate our kids and to ensure their social development. Mm. So there are some costs to masking in school. Right? It is, it, it's uncomfortable. For some children, it's really difficult. And there's a lot of emerging theories and data and discussion amongst educators that wearing masks limits their ability to educate our kids, at least in the model that our kids are used to being educated. Mm. And then it can stunt their social development. And that's a real cost, but that's the downside to the masking. And it's not unreasonable right now to be aware of that and to want to talk about that mm. and to not just reflexively say that whatever is going to control COVID in school, that's what we should do. Mm-hmm. At the same time, clearly, we need to control COVID in school. I think like we should not, you know, what we learned last year is that there's nothing magical about school. COVID will transmit in school if there's no mitigation in place. So it's not true that schools are somehow magically protected or that children cannot contract COVID. Children Mm. absolutely can contract COVID. Thankfully, when they do, they tend to not have as serious of a disease. There's some people out there saying, oh, kids can't get COVID or schools are inherently safe. That's not true. Mm. Last year when we had masking and three, even three foot social distancing and some basic attempts to improve filtration, not major infrastructure improvements, just new filters, a couple of portable HEPA filters, things like that. We really did prevent COVID transmission in our schools at mm-hmm. the same time that there was a lot of COVID going around in the community, far more than we have today. So, you know, mitigation can work. So I would say, you know, I don't dismiss the argument that we shouldn't be masking. I hear that argument. I think it's an important one to engage with right now. But as of today, with Delta going on, with the fact that especially in the K through six grades, none of the children is vaccinated, mm-hmm. it, it makes sense to be masking when we go back to school. But I also think it makes sense to recognize that we can't just stay in this full mitigation posture forever. Mm. We need to start thinking about the fact that COVID is likely going to be with us. SARS-CoV-2, the virus, is likely to be with us. And it could become what we call an endemic infection, which means it's not everywhere that you look, but it is out there and it never goes away entirely. Yeah. And there's always some theoretical risk of COVID out there. And we can't just make this blank check open-ended commitment forever to keep disrupting education in schools the way we have been for the last two years. I would say, yes, we should be masking on September 8th or whatever the first day of school is in 2021. Mm-hmm. But we should be having the discussion, an honest discussion with ourselves. What lets us stop? When can we stop? Yeah. And what are the measures that we would need to pause or to, to stop masking? And on the flip side, if things got worse, what would cause us to, to put mitigation back in place? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of communities, not necessarily schools, but kind of in their indoor masking policies are saying, follow the data. So if low transmission and, you know, low everything else or high vaccination rates, that there could be, you know, an easing of any restrictions. But if our community is low transmission, even though they're seeing an uptick in cases, but it's not 
you know, it's obviously not widespread transmission, and we have high vaccination rates, and we have low vaccine hesitancy. Why mask everyone in September? I would start off with masking everyone simply because right now we're in an extremely uncertain time and we're mm-hmm. really in an uptick on Delta. We're in the, it's not clear where we are. It's not clear what's happening with Delta. And there's also questions around sort of transmissibility even after vaccine with Delta. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that in the short term, September of 2021, it makes a lot of sense to start off with masks. Our children are used to this. I don't think it's going to really disrupt their, you know, the good news is we're going to be in school. That's the most important thing. And if kids are wearing masks, for the most part, I, you know, I want to acknowledge there are some kids that just can't, and that's fine. That's where you have the luxury of a buffer of lots of vaccine and very low rates. And if a handful of kids really can't mask for medical or or psychiatric reasons, you know, that's not going to create a huge risk in the building. Um, but if the vast majority of the kids are masked and the staff are masked, right, we, we know that we're starting in a safe spot with mitigation. But again, I think it's important to be explicit. When do we stop? Yeah. What does follow the data mean? What are the thresholds? When are we going to stop? What's going to be our policy? So that when we get to those spots, everyone knows what to expect. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, two, I was at a subcommittee meeting today for policy that the school committee is debating. One of the pushback from the parents of the mask optional group were saying, well, did we really prove that masks stopped the spread of COVID in schools? What do you say to that? Yeah, you can't see me. I have my face in my palm with that. And I actually have, I've been very surprised by that tack coming from Folks who, folks who in general, I agree with almost everything they say, and there's a lot of people I've been really surprised to hear them articulate that. Um, I think that we did. Mm-hmm. Masks clearly work. The real question, that's not the question. The question is, at what point do we not need them anymore? Mm-hmm. Right? When there is COVID out there, masks protect you from COVID. Um, and masks clearly worked last year to prevent COVID transmission in schools. That's not the question. The question is just, when is the risk low enough that we're willing to take our masks off? Yeah. And that answer, right, to the side for folks who are um, advocating for mask mandates, but I think we have to be honest, those masks likely, we probably should stop the mask mandates before the risk of COVID is zero. Mm-hmm. Because the, the risk of COVID is not, might not ever be zero. Yeah. Because at some point, the risk of COVID is so low, the cost of masking and distancing and disruption to education are higher than the risk of COVID. And that's when we should be stopping. If the kids are masked, do you still see the same need for not working in groups? Yeah. Six feet of distancing or three feet of distancing. Do you see those same mitigation efforts being necessary? So I think wherever we can mitigate, we should try to. But I feel like for we've learned a lot. We're not in August of 2020. We're in August of mm-hmm. 2021. And we have learned a lot. And, you know, the question is, are the Provincetown reports and the Delta data enough to make us throw everything we knew away and start over again? And I would argue no. Mm-hmm. Delta is real. Delta is clearly more transmissible. It needs to enter our thoughts and it needs to enter our policies around mitigation. But it's not enough to send us back to the drawing board as if we're dealing with a new disease and we don't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And I was actually really upset or depressed last week when we I found us in our in our Brookline conversation again talking about can kids face each other or do they have to be facing forward and some of the some of the really minutia details that we were fretting this time last year and I, we're not there we don't need to be there kids can go to school and wear a mask and they can learn the way they usually mm. learn and also, I think that we have to start to ask these questions of ourselves. What are we trying to prevent? Mm. And is it is it really just COVID cases or is it bad COVID and deaths? Because 
all of us have had coronaviruses. We call it the cold and we never think about it. It's this coronavirus that scares us because of COVID-19. But if we have more vaccine and we have less and less and less and less hospitalization, while we still may have some low-level transmission, at some point we have to start to wonder what's our goal. And in school, our goal should be to educate our kids and keep them safe. And I think we can do that with masks. Yeah. What would the conditions need to be for you to send your vaccinated? Yeah. Yeah. What, what would the conditions need to be? So for me, I think if I saw case rates in my community below, you know, I probably want to see them get down below five, three, you know, three, four cases um, in the community per 100,000 population. I'd want to see that the staff in my building are a vast majority vaccinated. And if that were the case, I'd feel comfortable sending my kids without a mask. And I, I honestly, I look forward to that. I really look forward to the yeah. day that I can send my 11 year old without a mask. Yeah, yeah. That's how I'm living my life. My kids are wearing masks to school, including my vaccinated kids to start the year. And then we'll see. I hope to get them out of those masks. I hope we can make more progress. Let's take a quick break here. To put faces to these voices and read other local news, head to our media partners at The Anchor. It's hingamanchor.com. Okay, back to the conversation. I talked with another doctor, Dr. Vadhana Madhavan. She's a pediatric infectious disease specialist and pediatrician at Mass General Hospital for Children. I asked her to weigh in on the latest COVID data tied to kids, and she had some startling news about long COVID. So... As just to put into a little bit of context, um, last spring um, at the onset of the declaration of the pandemic, we really talked about, you know, this is an adult focused disease Mm -hmm. and the numbers from the first several months were all about 2% of cases um, were in children. Mm -hmm. And then it started to increase. And then as we got into our first surge and our second surge and later surges, it really became more close to 10%. It's not that the virus became somehow different and more dangerous to children and that children became more susceptible. A lot of that was due to the fact that children, even if they do have COVID-19, tend to have less significant disease. And in the early days when testing, um, access to testing was a lot more limited. In more recent weeks, as we are seeing positive tests be in children, um, in the teens, even close to 20%. Again, it's not that children are more susceptible, but that children are not vaccinated. Um, Here locally in Massachusetts, we have an overall better vaccination rate um, than in most states um, in this country. However, that still doesn't mean we're at 95% vaccination rate, nowhere close to our childhood vaccination rates for routine vaccinations, for example. Mm. So it still means it's spreading more rapidly, which is why we're seeing more numbers of cases. And because we're seeing more numbers, there's always been a small percentage of children who are sick who need to be hospitalized. And so we are seeing more hospitalizations. We're not necessarily seeing more severe cases now than we had in our earlier surges. It's just that the um, it you know we're seeing more more cases. Yeah, I think, um, and there maybe have been a slight uptick in this, but as of at least a week or so ago, sixty nine percent of Hingham residents were fully vaccinated, and according to the town, if you added in the kids over twelve that were eligible, we get up to eighty two percent. You know, I've heard some people say, so we don't need to worry. What do you say? That makes me worry when people say we don't need to worry. While 
the target for herd immunity based on vaccination alone in earlier days of the pandemic might have been closer to 70 or 80 percent. We're now dealing, again, as I mentioned, um, with the Delta variant, which is much more transmissible. We need more people to be vaccinated to really shut that down. Um, And so we likely need um, a herd immunity of over 90 percent. Yeah, it's interesting. So for people who say, well, you know, okay, some kids are getting sick and that's a shame, but it's like the flu and we're not seeing the hospitalizations here locally. What are your concerns in terms of what we do and don't know? Excellent, excellent question. I really focus on the different kinds of impacts on children from the COVID-19 pandemic. You're absolutely right that in terms of acute COVID-19, the acute infection, the the lung disease, the initial complications um, requiring breathing support, blood clots, you know, et cetera, you know, that we see that kids are at lower risk um, of developing those complications, lower risk of requiring hospitalization, lower risk of needing additional support, even if they're not that sick, but lower risk of needing medications, oxygen support, et cetera. But we have to think about that even if the initial infection is mild or asymptomatic, that doesn't rule out the risk of longer term complications. We have well over a year, year's worth of information on MISC, multisystem inflammatory syndrome, Mm -hmm. um, a disease that can cause significant inflammation in all parts of the body, whether it's coronary artery inflammation, cardiac muscle inflammation itself, um, you know, full body inflammation that requires relatively intensive care for all children in terms of medications. And some kids do require heart-lung machine, you know, support, et cetera, have needed to be in the ICU, et cetera, and has caused um, deaths in um, in the U.S. And so while that is a low risk of developing MISC, it's a non-zero risk. And again, it's not the it's not necessarily the kids who have a detectable initial infection who develop MISC, um, mm. any any child. So lowering children's rates of acute COVID-19 infection, even if they're not sick initially, will lower their risks of severe complications in MI, of, of MISC. We also are learning that long COVID, where patients, where people who um, have acute COVID-19 can have persistent symptoms, but also can develop new symptoms and people who have no symptoms initially can develop symptoms later, whether it's neurologic, brain fog, confusion, et cetera, whether it's uh, heart muscle inflammation, whether it's breathing difficulties, et cetera, it really runs the gamut. And so again, children might not be as at risk for that initial infection, but they're at risk for these longer term complications as well. Yeah. Yeah. So is this the time to freak out and lock our kids down? No, it, it's a time to be appropriately concerned. <laughs> yes, it's frustrating that we're still dealing with a lot of um, you know challenging questions 17 months in. It's also really important to remember how much we know. So we know that masks work. We know that vaccines work. We know that social distancing works. We know that outside is safer than inside. We know that smaller groups where vaccination status is known 
um, is safer than larger gatherings where we don't have data. What would you say to a community that was considering mask optional for the older set of kids with the higher vaccination rates? I would be firmly against that at this point. Even with higher vaccination rates, we still don't know what the appropriate herd immunity threshold is with the Delta variant. And that's what we're dealing with right now. We don't want our schools to be the enforcers of mask optional (laughs) recommendations you know, are children going to be wearing stickers saying, oh, yes, you're allowed to take your mask off. You're not allowed to. Who's going to be enforcing that? Um, mm-hmm. You can imagine, you know, returning to school, returning to some, you know, semblance of norm- normalcy is already going to be laden with some stress um, after having been out of these settings for so long. And then um, having, you know, teenagers, uh deal with the peer pressure of, hey, you're vaccinated, right? Like, you don't need to wear a mask. Oh, hey, like, you know, what are you doing? Starting with mask mandates there is the way to go to help to help protect them, not only there, but in other other settings as well. What about lunchtime? Um, great question. Obviously, masks, you know, have to come off. I think, um, you know, schools have already been so creative thinking about lunchtime, not just with spacing, but uh, spaces to, you know, in which to eat. Um, taking advantage of outdoor spaces, you know, creative timing, etc. We do know that the six feet spacing um, that we were recommending likely is necessary. Three feet is likely um, good, but I think you know we can be really um, you know mindful and, and creative of making sure that the kids eat, which is obviously important, um, while still keeping them um, in this in the school environment. You don't envision right now kids being able to sit at the same lunch table, no mass, eat lunch. I think same tables, yes, with attention to spacing around those tables. Every school system is going to have different, um, every school is going to have different uh, considerations in terms of available locations and timing and supervision capabilities, et cetera. Okay, let me rapid fire throw some things at you and you tell me what you think. Would you let your unvaccinated child have a sleepover at another family's house? At this point, I would not. Um, I think if we had potted directly with one family, I think it'd be one thing and we knew our risk factors. I think the the sleepover question, I think if there's one family that, of like two families who've been potted together and all of the adults are vaccinated and they're very comfortable with what they're doing when they visit a grocery store, when they go to work, et cetera, and there's been indoor masking, I think it's a different a different situation. So I have a vaccinated 12-year-old, and she says to me, I want to go to sleep over at Emma's house, and everyone in Emma's house is vaccinated. Is that a no or a yes in your house? I I would say, again, really thinking about is this, a, like, what has the other family been doing? This is not the time to be coy and say, like, oh, I don't know this other family. I'm not going to ask questions. This is the time to really ask questions so you feel informed. Okay. Um, And again, I know I'm talking to a pediatrician who probably has a higher threshold than some of us, but (laughs) um, February vacation travel, yes or no? (laughs) Um, Wow. That's a great question. I have to confess, I haven't even started thinking that far ahead. We've been sort of thinking about Labor Day and Columbus Day long weekends. How would you advise a patient? I mean, obviously, February, we have no idea what the, the state of the world will be in terms of you know, what travel restrictions there are, what, you know, what's circulating. 
But if things were similar to now, it's all about if everyone is vaccinated, really thinking about all aspects of travel. We know that air travel in and of itself is safer. There's good air circulation. Masks are supposed to be worn, et cetera. But thinking about, okay, how much time are you spending in an airport? Are there multiple layovers? Are you likely to be there for a long period of time? Are you eating? How are you getting to and from the airport? And then when you get to your destination, are you going to be having interactions outside with a large number of people in large crowds? Are you going to be doing indoor activities and with whom? I think it's one thing to visit you know, an elderly grandparent. It's another thing to go, much as I love Disney World, it's another thing to go to Disney World, which will always be there. Okay. In a community with a vaccination rate of, say, 70%, one unvaccinated child, one vaccinated child, two vaccinated adults, out to dinner? I'll be honest, I have not eaten inside except for one time. If a family said to you, my threshold isn't as hardcore as a pediatrician's, right? how would you advise me? I would still say I think about what is safer versus what's safe. And we know that outdoors is safer than indoors. Yeah. Yeah. So I recently had my nine-year-old. I, I, I let my nine-year-old go to sleepaway camp for a week at mm-hmm. the Girl Scout place, you know, a couple towns over. Mm-hmm. They were in cohorts. They were masked inside. But she came home with a nasty cold. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, God, here we go. What am I looking for as a parent for potential symptoms? And when do I call the doctor? When do I test? What do I do? So a couple of things. One, um, I think, I know I said no, you know, I was talking about sleepovers. I think sleepaway camps are more formal settings where there is testing, appropriate identification, appropriate protocols in place, et cetera, very different. And so I really do encourage Mm -hmm. families to think about formal activities where, you know, safeguards are in place. Certainly a child who presents with a cough and a fever in the setting of a known exposure to COVID-19, yes, you know, my suspicion is higher. Mm. But I would say that for any child with any symptoms, um, they should be tested. More testing is going to be helpful to know about patterns of transmission, identify pockets of transmission early so that they can be appropriately addressed. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have been asking me about when vaccines are going to be available for younger children. What are my thoughts? You know, as a medical professional, what you know, what you've heard, and if these are available in fall or likely perhaps early next year, would you have your child take it? And what do we know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I tried to get our kids enrolled in a vaccine trial in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want my kids to be protected as much as possible. Mm-hmm. In terms of timing, as you know, people are you know likely aware, the FDA asked for more children in this younger age group to be included in trials for both Pfizer and Moderna to get more data. So that is obviously going to delay things a little bit more. We know that there the effectiveness is not you know, an issue. The vaccines will be effective in younger kids. Um, one thing that will be will have to be parsed out is the the dosing because they likely won't need a full adult dose to have as good a response. So that will have to be looked at. And in terms of safety, the the mechanism of the mRNA vaccine, there should be no reason that there would be increased safety concerns in um, in younger children. Yes, they might be more likely to have higher fevers because that's what they 
do. But in terms of true safety concerns and adverse effects, there's really no data to suggest that the younger children, you know, would be at higher risk. And so once once these data are formally released, um, I am hopeful that we will move quickly towards authorization and having, you know, the ability to roll out uh, vaccines to the younger kids. While I, I will also say that while there was a lot of initial ramp up in terms of vaccine clinics to get adult vaccine doses out, um, pediatricians give vaccines to kids, to younger kids all the time. That infrastructure is in place. We think about flu clinics every year. Um, and so I am also hopeful that the rollout will be even easier because this is what we do. We give vaccines to kids. Excellent. Dr. Madhavan, I thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, thank you so much for having me today. Let me thank Gary Maestas and Dr. Benjamin Linus here, too. This is the first of ongoing conversations we'll have this school year. Thanks also to my podcasting partner, the incredibly talented and thoughtful producer-editor Kristen Keefe. Our intern, Claudia Chiappa, who will soon leave us to head back to the books at Boston University. And Hingham's own Cameron Baker. Our website was designed by Donna Mavramatis and her team at Mavro Creative. I'm Allie Donnelly. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.